Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Hello, lovers, and welcome to Oh God, What Now? Our last episode before Valentine's Day. It's going to be a busy one for the Prime Minister. <laughs> I'm Naomi Smith, and I'm joined today by a trio of heartthrobs. Alex Andreu is an actor, writer, commentator, and rooftop gardener. Hi, Alex. <laughs> rooftop gardener sounds a little bit like a sexual euphemism. <laughs> <laughs> Like, like a sort of old army major who doesn't want to say the word gay, going, no, nice man, <laughs> bit of a rooftop gardener, if you catch my drift. <laughs> Hello, now, Naomi. I'm good, I'm good. Constantly hitting refresh before we begin recording because of some new and photo emerging. And of course, you often get early scoops uh, on the Partygate scandal. And hours before we came to record today, another photo emerged of the PM mm. partying. Tell us about this latest one. Will it even matter? Do you know what I'm? It it doesn't matter on its own. Uh, I mean, it's it's a photo from that quiz thing that he said. Oh, it was very safe, and he ran it all online. But he's pictured with several people, and there's an open bottle of champagne, and people are wearing tinsel, and it just it looks wrong. But what the reason it matters more i think is because it signals to his mp's that this will go on and on and on until the party either get rid of him or the or the public become so used to it that they stop paying attention which i have to tell you is also quite a likely yes. outcome yes um, Dominic Cummings, of course, and you know, never want to be quiet on such things, has hinted <laughs> at there being way better pictures around. Um, do you get the feeling the worst or best, depending on your perspective, is yet to come? Well, there's certainly more to come. We know that Sue Gray and the Met Police have hundreds of photos, and we know that some of them involve the PM because as per the Mirror's scoop last week, he was so arrogant that he had his official photographer <laughs> there taking taking pictures. These things will at some point begin to emerge, right? But um, my feeling is that maybe like Matt Hancock, this rambling scandal will be the thing that fatally destabilizes him, but it will be something else, maybe a bit left field, that gives him the final push. Ian Dunt is a columnist for The Eye and rivaling Dominic Cummings now with his own new weekly newsletter, <laughs> Ian Dunt's Week. Hi, Ian. <laughs> hello, hello. Now, the graphic novel Mouse has been removed from the school curriculum at a school in Tennessee. Uh, they claim it's due to nudity uh, and maybe rooftop gardening, I don't know. But the book's author, <laughs> Art Spiegelman, thinks it's a political decision to ban the book, uh, which depicts his father's experiences during the Holocaust. Why this book and why now? It's always been a more controversial book than people realise, I think, because it doesn't. it's not like most sort of narratives of the Holocaust, especially the kind of 
relatively safe stuff you see like boy in the striped pajamas which is which is this quite broad i would say slightly dehistoricized kind of view of bigotry and intolerance but without any kind of specificity of the horror or the specificity of the situation i mean mouse is one of those things where you see you know the other kids around the german kids are not portrayed as innocent people being corrupted they're already dreadful and full of racism and hatred the image that they're talking about with nudity is an image of the artist's mother in a bath having cut her own wrists. I mean, how they could have come to the conclusion that this was in any way titillating to anyone or, or, or inappropriate is beyond me. But I think his assessment of it being political is completely correct. Because actually, when you read what the board members said, I mean, one of them said, this is a quote, it says, Mouse shows people hanging. It shows them killing kids. Why does the educational system promote this kind of stuff? And you just think, well, essentially, if that's your reason for banning this book, what you're really against is teaching the Holocaust, you know, of, of yeah. making kids uncomfortable in any way when they read about history. And in fact, Republicans in the U.S. are becoming increasingly explicit about this. The Florida Republicans have just passed the bill, I beg your pardon, announced the bill that's supposed to shield students from, quote, discomfort over race, sex and gender when learning about history. You sort of think, well, this is quite an extraordinary, it, it sounds like this old right wing kind of censorship, but actually it's something quite new, which is a fear of discomforting kids when learning about history, which I would suggest is one of the engines of improving children through the understanding of history. And therefore it's pretty much exactly as pernicious as Arts Pilgrim suggested. And people in glass houses shouldn't throw stones, given that our school curriculum for a long time and probably still now barely touches on the uh, British Empire's evils. <laughs> uh, and certainly I had a very rosy tinted and made to feel comfortable view of, of British history um, while I was at school. Our guest this week is freelance journalist, author and all round gorgeous brain, Marie Leconte. Marie, welcome back to the show. Hello, thanks for having me. You recently wrote about people role-playing as MPs online using Reddit. Listeners have to go and read it because it just, it makes my toes curl so much. But who am I to think shame the users of Reddit and how they like to spend their time? Tell us what they're up to. Are there any more, you know machinations that go on there that are even less functional than our current government <laughs> or I mean is, is it is it at least a healthier version of what we've got in real life well yes and no so it's called the model house of commons and I kind of stumbled upon it slightly randomly um and I was just amazed by the the intricacy of it so it's basically so it's not just a model house of commons to be clear there's also model house of lords uh, model devolved assemblies um, there's a Speaker of the House of Commons, obviously a government and opposition, 150 MPs. There's a um, model strangers bar as well, um, model wow. journalists. It's everything. And again, it's like hundreds of people. Um, they run elections. So every, I can remember, it's not quite every four or five years, but every, I think, six months or something. Um, there's an all-nighter on YouTube uh, to announce the election <laughs> results, like a real election. Again, the level of wow. detail is unbelievable. They have, um, obviously, debates in the Commons every day, um, questions to the ministers, questions to the prime minister, everything. It, it's, yeah. And it, it, it's sort of brilliant, because I think, obviously, I chatted to a few of them, because uh, I was like, I must write about this. Uh, this is, you know, an, an ideal feature. Um and, and yeah, what, what I will say, what I found interesting is that they were all just deeply sort of like passionate about policy. You know, their thing was policy. So what they like actually about doing Model House of Commons, for example, um, is, you know, talking about how do we regulate crypto or, you know, what's up with pulse fishing in the UK? 
Um, so yes, yeah, so I suppose maybe that that's one thing uh, real life politicians could probably take from them right now. But actually, you know, at the end of the day, politicians are there to make laws and change laws and debate on policy. Um, and that's, I feel like, not really something that's been at the forefront of MPs' minds for quite a long time now. <laughs> I wonder if uh, one of the pulse fishing policy wonks was Ros Taylor 21958. <laughs> 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 this week, Boris Johnson has rearranged the chess pieces in Downing Street. It's just that the chessboard is in half and on the deck of a sinking plague ship that's also on fire. <laughs> Who are his new advisers and how long can they keep him afloat? Plus another spotlight on a government minister. We're asking who is Nadine Doris? And more importantly, why is Nadine Doris? And then the extra <laughs> bit for Patreon backers, sorry seems to be the hardest word for Boris Johnson. But what about our panel? What are the biggest things they've had to apologise for or the difficult apologies they've avoided? Before we start some exciting live show news, next month we're back at the Leicester Square Theatre in London on Wednesday 9th of March at 7pm. Ros, Dorian, Ian and Minnie will be warming the marshmallows around the Westminster bin fire. <laughs> Tickets are on sale now at leicestersquaretheatre.com. You can also see our handsome faces in Leeds at the Leeds City Varieties on Sunday the 3rd of April at 2pm matinee show with Naomi, Dorian, Ian and me. And then on Wednesday, 8th of June, we're cracking out the bathing suits and 99 flakes on the South Coast at the Old Market Theatre in Hove with myself, Roz, Ian and Dorian. All tickets are in general sale now. Patreon people get a discount on them, so search Patreon Oh God What Now podcast and sign up for VIP access. We'll see you there. Now, first this week, it is all change in Downing Street. Following the exodus of five advisors from his inner circle, there's been a mini reshuffle or he shuffle because it was mostly he's and a new director of communications, the former GB news host and arch remainer Gitto Harry. It was a busy first day for Harry, I think it's fair to say. Arriving at Downing Street, he broke into a rendition of I Will Survive with Boris Johnson. By the end of the day, he was coordinating a tweet storm by Tory MPs in condemnation of the mob that surrounded Keir Starmer and David Lammy outside Parliament and being labelled Huawei Harry by Dominic Cummings because of lobbying allegations on behalf of the firm. Ian, it's clear to the rest of us what happened to Starmer was a direct result of Johnson's accusations in the Commons last week. Uh, in the video, you can hear people shouting Savile at Starmer, but number 10 isn't backing down. How long can they keep up? Oh, I mean, I think indefinitely. They'd shown absolutely no signs of making an apology over what was said there. I don't think that they have any intention of doing it. And I think that you, you can see by virtue of what happened to Starmer that even that didn't prompt an apology, that it's just never going to come. I don't really think it particularly matters, to be honest, whether he makes an apology. The, the, the really important thing has already happened, which is that the moral line has been held in a way that we've really struggled to make it hold for the last few years. And that comes partly because of the way that some Tory MPs have spoken out against it, partly because of the way that I think when journalists present the information, they're so very clear and specific about the fact that it is false before they even introduce it. And partly because public opinion has held up and you see poll after poll sort of demonstrating, no, no, they think it is wrong, they think he should apologise for it. 
And I think also because he suffered wounds on the back of it. Like Munir Mirza, his long-time mm. policy chief, sort of resigning over it. We can have a debate as to whether she really resigned over that or was it whatever. All that matters is publicly, that's the, that's the statement that she made. And all of that just holds up this moral line of saying, no, hang on a minute, there is a basis upon which you cannot lie. You shouldn't be using slurs that you picked out of far-right websites that essentially weaponize the victims of child abuse so you can damage a political enemy. And that's yeah. the really core part. And that is the part that we have actually managed to maintain regardless of what he does now. And just as well, because he shows no sign of doing the right thing. You know, that for sure there were strong Hillary Clinton pizza restaurant vibes yes. uh, in, in yeah. you know, underlying what he said. Um, but there was also strong anti-vaxxers uh, at the mob and, and them throwing in those statements. So is Johnson consciously making a link, tapping into broader anti-establishment mindsets, given that anti-vaxxers are often from the far left as much as they're from the far right? I don't know. I mean, who knows what's going on in that guy's head, to be honest. Like, we've already sat before and sort of gone, you know, is this him just lashing out when he's in a corner? Or is it a concerted attempt to just try and, in that 350 million on the side of a busway, link the name Starmer Savile, Starmer Savile, and just get it repeated enough that people respond to it? Or something more pernicious? And I just think it's very hard to work out what is calculation with him. And what is just willful emotion? I mean, we heard in last week's episode just how emotional this guy is when he feels outraged by something. I think you see it repeatedly in the comments. It's not beyond the realm of possibility that this stuff just suddenly comes out because mm. he's riled. But again, the intention sort of doesn't matter because he's done it anyway, right? He's formed that link. He's taken mm. the kind of broiling chat that you get in those areas of the online world. And you'll see it on Twitter, by the way. You talk about this stuff. You will see these guys pop up on Twitter and talk about, you know, Starmer protecting pedophiles in a way that isn't even about Savile as part of this protracted conspiracy theory. He's taken that stuff and he's inserted it into the House of Commons from the mouth of the prime minister. He's given it the validation, regardless of what his intention ultimately was. And let's talk about the speaker and all of this, because Lindsay Hoyle made a statement on Tuesday reiterating that while the prime minister's words were not disorderly, they were inappropriate. Should he have done more? at the time to stop it from spiralling? Or is he just constrained by convention? I just don't know what he can, I, I don't know what he can do. And I know that that is such a hopelessly unhelpful answer at the moment. And, and absolutely, I accept that this is an untenable situation where the penalties for accusing someone of lying are much more severe than lying itself. Like that cannot withstand. But ultimately, I can't see really what else he could do. I, if we're to imagine a system, I guess this is the way to do it. So step back and think, okay, so how do we fix the problem? And I don't think any potential solution is going to come through having the speaker be a kind of umpire of objective and empirical fact on a minute by minute, real time basis in the commons. That just seems like a complete mess. And I don't see how they'd be able to do the job properly. I think if, if we want to talk seriously about how to approach this, and it's hard, and I haven't heard any good ideas for it, really, I think it would be giving powers to somebody in Parliament to evaluate the truthfulness of what is said in the Commons. I mean, the obvious place to look would be something like the House of Commons Library, you know, which mm. does investigatory, which does research work for MPs, and say, you know, M MPs can ask for research, maybe they can ask it to come up with an assessment of the veracity, the veracity yeah. of stuff that's said in the Commons. And that, by the way, would be kicked around and it would be suddenly very, very politicised and it would be an absolute shit show. Absolutely it would. But I think if you're looking for solutions, it seems more in that direction 
than it is just giving all of that responsibility to Lindsay Hall to do it in real time. Alex, onto the new advisors. Um, Gitto Harry has, of course, been a critic of Johnson in the past, uh, although you know they have they have worked together previously as well. Um, among other things, once calling him sexually incontinent. <laughs> Uh, that's so, a you statement know. of fact, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like calling um, him blonde, isn't it? He, he's not had a great first few days, uh, um, you know, and uh, apparently has been told off in no uncertain terms by Johnson uh, for referring to him as not a total clown. Um, <laughs> what, what do you think is behind the PM calling on, on Gitto Harry now? This reminds me of an apocryphal story about a famous director with whom an actor once joked, you know, I heard that you offered this part to another actor. I hope I wasn't your second choice. To which he responded dryly, you were definitely not my second choice. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And and I think that's the answer. I mean, I know from my contacts in the Cabinet Office and Number 10 that several feelers were put out for the positions and laughed at before this magical union emerged. I mean, he's basically Anthony Scaramucci to Johnson's Trump, (laughs) and it will be delicious to watch it unravel. (laughs) He allegedly lobbied number 10 to keep Huawei as part of the UK's 5G network. Um, Is this another cosy cronyism scandal waiting to happen or the kind of new low-level corruption we've just got used to? Well, honestly, it's both. So so it's both the garden variety revolving door conflict of interest, you know, Patterson, Randox, Cameron, Greensill stuff that we've been uncovering for, for years and potentially significant because it is the Sun and the Telegraph pushing it. So maybe they hate Harry because he's liberal, maybe because he's a Remainer, maybe because he has a bad relationship with the reputation. Maybe it's just personal stuff. We we also have to remember that this is an incredibly incestuous, small network with complicated histories. But the fact is that on the first week of appointing someone as your new director of comms, you don't want them to be splashed across the pages of your two friendliest publications. Marie, on to this uh, reshuffle, or he-shuffle, um, uh, as people have dubbed it. Mark Spencer, Chief Whip, has been moved to leader of the House of Commons. Uh, and Spencer is, of course, currently uh, under investigation after Nusrat Ghani claimed she was sacked as a minister over concerns about her Muslimness. What do you reckon the backbenchers are going to make of Mark Spencer's appointment? I mean, it it felt like a very odd move to me because I think, again, that this is not someone like this is someone who's obviously already alienated, I think, a vast proportion of Conservative MPs, Um, you know, and was also just not really good at his job. So why move him to the one job where actually he still has to actually engage with the parliamentary party a lot? So why not? Mm. You know, because obviously virtually any other job um, in government, he could have been shipped off to Whitehall and kind of, you know, be made to deal with that away from Parliament. Whereas leader of the House is by definition the job where you kind of in the Commons. So yeah, I'm, I'm not sure it's going to be particularly well received. And um, as I think Janice pointed out yesterday as well, uh, the Leader of the House is the person who's the custodian in Parliament for the complaint system and anything uh, matter that standards related, which obviously given the Nurse Ghani um, kind of evolving scandal, does not feel <laughs> ideal. So yeah, no, I, I, yeah, it, it just felt deeply yeah. puzzling as a sort of sideways move. Yeah, sort of making victims confront their abuser. Great. Um, making way for Mark Spencer is, of course, uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg, 
whose new brief is BO Minister Brexit <laughs> Opportunities. Um, given that even staff at his own firm, Somerset Capital, have criticised Brexit, has he pretty much been set up to fail, do you think? I don't think so, actually. I, I think, you know, it as a job, it sort of reminds me of the Secretary of State for International Trade back when trade deals could not be made, um, you know, which was basically a job for <laughs> yeah. going on jollies across the world and being like, Hello, Britain here. Wouldn't it be neat if at some point further down the road we could make some sort of trade deal? And people are like, sure. Um, and I kind of feel like Brexit opportunities is kind of the same. Like he's probably just going to go on jollies and go, hello, isn't this a nice thing that's happening probably because of Brexit? And people will be like, I suppose so. Um, but but yeah, I, I think the problem is, you know, he's a massive Boris loyalist. And there's still, I think, a part of the Conservative Party and Conservative members who really love him. Um, but he's also a massively divisive figure and he cannot stop sort of, you know, landing himself in it. So that feels like very much just a made up job for, oh, doesn't Jacob rees off to just talk to people and be like, Brexit, 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 Brexit. <laughs> <laughs> um, Alex, you're a former civil servant. Um, and of course, it's not uncommon for people to change roles within big organisations. But from your time there, can you give us a flavour of what you think it would have been like for so many big beasts to resign on the same day? Do you know, I can't because, yes, it's not a, that uncommon, but there's a, a huge change has happened in the last decade. So it comes after a sustained period of hollowing out the senior civil service, which is there precisely to provide continuity and give this sort of nimbleness to the politicians. But we've had a decade of, of replacing those sorts of senior civil servants with special advisors. And now that there's a problem, they cannot be quietly shuffled away. They have to be marched out mm. of Downing Street. And because nobody sane wants to take the job, they have been replaced largely by MPs, which erodes this structure yep. even further. I mean, what happens after the next election if, say, the Conservatives lose? It will be that not only the ministers go, but actually the people who are meant to be civil servants who know what's going on in the department also go because they've appointed MPs to do those jobs. So there is a serious point that, that it demonstrates what Johnson has learned out of the whole shit show is that he needs more defences. The, that's the only lesson he has taken forward was that he had left one thing for which he didn't have a human shield, a sort of sandbag. What goes on in his own fucking house? So what has he done? He's created a department responsible for controlling what goes on in his house, put it across the street and built a moat so he can continue to behave like a dick, but have someone to fire next time he's found out. That's what's actually happened here. Well, speaking of next time he's found out, breaking news while we're recording from um, the Press Association. Oh, God, Scot what? Scotland Yard, <laughs> Scotland Yard is reviewing its assessment of that Christmas quiz uh, in number 10 on December the 15th. The Metropolitan Police said in a statement, the MPS previously assessed this event and determined that on the basis of the evidence available at that time, it did not meet the threshold for criminal investigation. That assessment is now being reviewed. Well, I mean, do you guys remember his first cabinet meeting after the sort of reshuffle after the election? He made all the cabinet sit round the table and sort of sing-songy chant 
How many hospitals are we going to build? 40. How many police? Do you, do you remember that? And, mm. and I said at the time that okay. he's made a huge mistake because having built a parliamentary party of morons, he's, he's sort of surrounded himself with the, the worst and most servile of them. And this is not a recipe for good government. And it's not an astute political move. So this stuff will keep happening because now... People like Joy Morrissey, do you remember her? She's the one who wanted the taxpayer to yeah. pay to put a portrait of the Queen in every home in England. <laughs> now, a special advisor to uh, to Johnson. He's taking her into Downing Street. So the quality of the advice, he, the advice he's receiving will be worse rather than better going forward. Next, a question from our Patreon backers in But Your Emails. This week, and it is a goodie, Sebastian says, while out on a walk in the countryside, note to Ian, countryside is a place outside of London, <laughs> you stumble across... Oh, <laughs> I've been there, stumble... by the way. It's fucking dreadful. <laughs> while out on a walk in the countryside, you stumble across a time machine. It's a bit battered. They are also clumsy. But would be safe to use for one trip and back again. Where and when in history do you go to and why? And safety warning, history is robust. You can't change anything. So you're just going to be an observer. If you try, we can already see from history that you failed. So I'm going to go to Marie first. Which period of history would you go back to and why? Um, so actually, by coincidence, I've been watching Babylon Berlin uh, for the past few weeks. And I also went to see Cabaret um, at the Playhouse Theatre last week. Um, so I think I would just go and party in Weimar, Germany uh, for a week, just solid, um, <laughs> just basically get very drunk in ve yeah, various cabarets, I suppose, uh, <laughs> in Berlin in sort of like 1928. That's, I, I feel like, you know, we, we all need some party to get it, everything out of our systems. So, yeah, there you go. No, nothing highbrow for me. You don't think that would be a bit depressing, like watching a party and sort of thinking, this isn't going to turn out very well for you guys. <laughs> Ian, how about you? I find it quite because because I, I, I sort of think well, you don't want to go because all the stuff I really want to see is stuff where as soon as you turned up, they'd obviously just instantly fucking kill you, right? Because they'd think you're <laughs> a, like I don't know a demon or something. Like if you go back to ancient Greece, presumably it's not going to go very well, or you know the English Civil War. They're obviously going to burn <laughs> you as some kind of uh, as as a popist. I'm, well, I mean, I literally am a popist. I was baptized, so they would kill me instantly. So I suppose you have to go for. I think I'd go for the French Revolution, like the early, the early good season, you know, before they start. Season one, season one of the French Revolution. Season one, exactly. I'd want to be there for the end of season one when they pass the rights of man, and then I'd want to fuck off really quickly before season two. Come on, how is that different from my thing? Well, that's true. That that's a fair point. <laughs> I, I do accept that. <laughs> How about you, Alex? I, I was tempted to say I'm going to go back to sort of key key events of people who have fallen from grace, you know, I, I don't know, O.J. Simpson's wedding or um, Richard Nixon's <laughs> inauguration or something like that or, or Bill Cosby's first casting call and, and sort of be the person that goes, I don't know, I don't, there's something about him I don't like. <laughs> 
<laughs> just so everyone afterwards would think, fucking hell, he was a genius. He's not good judging. Yeah. All <laughs> oh, right. So it's not to save their future no, victims. You can't, sorry, I can't it's do just that. so that you look good. The terms, the terms of the question we put. Obviously, I'd love to save the victims, but um, but uh, <laughs> I, I think since since this has been left uh, open to us, I think I'd just go. 200 years in the future and hope that everything's improved and stay there. Oh, shit, I well, didn't realize no you could go you, forward. No said you can't, oh. so it's a time machine. So I'd go forwards. Well, I mean, yes, that's technically correct because, yeah, time machine, but it did then with a follow-up say when and where in history. Okay, then I would go to um, uh, La Scala Opera 1955 and watch, since all I can be is a spectator, I would watch uh, uh, Maria Callas sing Norma. Uh, it's a, it's an electric evening, and I would give anything to have been there. Wow. <laughs> Next this week, it's time for another spotlight on a government minister. In the last few weeks, we've done Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss, but who better now that the PM is being so roundly panned than one of his most strident cheerleaders, the Secretary for Romance Novels, Nadine Dorries. <laughs> She's a self-described council estate scouser, first elected in 2005. In her early career, she advocated for shorter abortion limits, abstinence-only education for girls in schools, and famously made an appearance on I'm a Celebrity where she was the first contestant evicted from the jungle. Ian, Dory's had a what can probably be described as a car crash interview on BBC Breakfast over the weekend, responding to being questioned on whether she'd spoken to the Prime Minister or not with, why would you ask me that? Um, Times journalist Sarah Tor said she knew how Dory's felt because she also hates having to talk to people before breakfast. As a non-morning person yourself, can you sympathise? <laughs> <laughs> Somebody, because what's unbelievable about that question, right? Is I've never said that I'm a non-morning person, but in week after week after week of editorial meetings, you have very clearly come to the conclusion that I cannot function at 10 a.m. And that is entirely correct. I, I am unable to function, and I find humans very difficult at that time, or indeed in the afternoon or the evening. Um, it was. I mean, I don't. I, I, my sympathy only goes so far because she didn't look that tired. She more looked like she just had an intellectual incomprehension about what her role was. Like that first why, it is, if you haven't, if anyone listening to this hasn't seen that video, it is important that you go watch it. Because I, I do think, I mean, that, I think it's not been since the Liz Truss yeah. speech about cheese that I've <laughs> laughed quite so much at something a politician has done. And all of the laughter was with the first why. Because it's just such a strange question. You're being asked, you are a cabinet secretary. When did you last talk to the prime minister? And her response is, why? And that in itself was unbelievably funny to me. But isn't, isn't it almost like the response of a guilty person? Yeah, that's how it looks. I mean, obviously... Why? Why would you that? No, we weren't sexting. What? No? <laughs> It's true. It's true. That is how it looks. But then people, I think what's happening is that people keep on looking at her and her behavior is so bizarre that they're having to come up with these theories. I mean, one of them is, you know, she's having an affair with Boris Johnson. 
Another one is she's drunk all the time. I mean, I really don't think she is drunk at 7.30 in the morning. Another one was, you know, that, oh, maybe she's got sort of psychological problems. I just think all of that is just, doesn't really work. I mean, the, the basic answer is she just doesn't have the capacity, the intellectual capacity, the professional capacity to be in the position she's been given. And ultimately, that's not really her fault. You know, that's the fault of the person who put her in that position to which she is so ill-suited. But then he himself is getting punished for putting her in that position by virtue of her being the one going on TV to defend him. So, <laughs> my my favorite bit of it was um, when when she was asked uh, what frame of mind Johnson was in, and she said he's a very positive person. One of his favorite expressions is onwards. <laughs> <laughs> so wise, such a wise man. <laughs> Um, when she was a backbencher, of course, she was not afraid of taking swings at the leadership. And I think she called Cameron and Osborne two arrogant posh boys who don't know the price of milk, but is now in service to the biggest posh boy of them all. Uh, is this just her being dim again? Or do you think she's sort of changed her philosophical outlook on the ultra rich? Yeah, I don't know. I don't think it was a class thing, was it? Isn't it more like a cultural... Okay, look, the, the non-generous answer is one of the posh boys offered her, you know, a leading Secretary of State job, and so therefore she's now loyal. But there is an alternative, which is that, you know, to give her some credit, I feel like I'm giving more credit than, than I frankly should. She does actually have a, a functioning personality. She is actually quite a vivid personality in a place where there often isn't much of that around. Um, and so is Boris Johnson. So it doesn't really surprise me that she has some affinity with him in the same way that it wouldn't surprise me that she kind of doesn't like that slightly automaton, managerial, Cameron Osborne style of doing politics. Probably Sunak would, would be lumped into the same boat. And so if I was being generous, which admittedly I don't enjoy doing and I'm not particularly enjoying as I say it, I think probably it's that. It's an affinity for sort of boisterousness and just being full of character that maybe allows her to surpass any of the prejudices she has about class. Um, Alex, Anne Widdicombe, uh, another uh, MP turned oh, reality God. contestant that we'd probably all rather forget, said she shouldn't have gone into the jungle of Dorries. But Nadine argued that it was her way of reaching constituents. And I suppose that's sort of, you know, where Ian's last point was that at least she has got a bit of personality about her. Do you think, Nadine has a point like is eating ostrich anus a better way to reach the red wall than say a constituency surgery well she's not an MP in the red wall so I don't know why she'd be trying to reach constituents there but look I think it's revealing about what she thinks reaching a constituent is about because uh, you know going on a show like uh, uh, I'm a celebrity get me out of here is of course a way to be seen by lots of people but absolutely not to engage in any meaningful way <laughs> so engaging with constituents involves for an MP that takes their job seriously listening to the constituents Going on TV on a high-profile show is the opposite. You're transmitting. You're saying, look at me. Aren't I a wonderful and ordinary person? And she obviously thought they were going to love her. Mm. But, but that's the point, isn't it? She thinks that being seen by loads of constituents, it's somehow reaching out. It's not. 
she's on transmit mode and she does the same on she does the same on twitter has done for decades she sort of just snaps back at anyone who criticizes her however mildly and blocks them and now she's secretary of state for culture and she's putting out you know relevant policy things she's using twitter to amplify new policy stuff going on in, in her department but she's basically blocked pretty much everyone from the arts and culture sh- sector mm. over the last 10 <laughs> years so she's doing the same thing you know she's reaching out but not really uh, listening to anything that comes back her way i can't remember the sequencing of whether she did the jungle before George Galloway wore a unitard on Celebrity Big Brother and pretended to be a cat. Well, I think they milk. were disturbingly close together, but I think Galloway was first. Okay, but you'd have thought then maybe that would have been a warning a warning to the world. <laughs> anyway. well, you know, they're narcissists. They all think they're going to love me. Uh, you know, they have absolutely zero sense of, of self. You know, the, no self-awareness whatsoever because... If she did, why would she go and be seen by people? But but is 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 that what's behind this uh, absolute adoration of Johnson? Is it just a very calculated move? You know, does she know that he's doomed and and looks as this is her best chance of saying I was in the inner circle uh, when she's going to be on the after dinner circuit? Or is that giving her too much credit? No, I think she loves him. I think she just loves him. Yeah. Um, you know, maybe not romantically, but the point is what's been said about Johnson again and again by people who know him is that he's a stupid person's intelligent person. Well, they don't come any more stupid than <laughs> Nadine Dorries, so she must think he's a fucking genius. And that's the answer. <laughs> no. it's, a, you know, it's a simple mathematical calculation. Marie, as part of the levelling up agenda, Doris has launched a sector vision plan worth £50 million to make sure UK culture is, quote, globally competitive, inclusive, environmentally sustainable and embedded within communities up and down the country. (laughs) Given that the Tory party hates at least two of those things, what do you think her vision of British culture really will look like? You know, your guess is as good as mine. Um, but no, I, I think the first thing to point out is actually £50 million is no money at all, really, in terms of policymaking at a national level, especially, you know, given that we're just coming out of a pandemic where the cultural sector was basically, you know, more or less left for dead for much of the mm. last two years. So, again, £50 million is not much. But no, I try to have a look at the detail. And again, I'm not... I'm not going to be massively helpful here. I think that the main note I made, actually, was that apparently £8 million is going to go to video game developers. Um, and I now dearly, dearly hope that this will lead in some way, shape or form to Nadine Dorries playing video games on camera. <laughs> um, that is just something I really, really want to see. Um, but yeah, no, apart from that, again, I'm not I'm not sure because it's not, it's just not that much money. Yeah, and I think there's a quote from her saying... Um, we have to do better at making sure people from deprived backgrounds instinctively feel that the creative industries are for them as well, um, which I completely agree, you know, I completely agree with. I think that's a very good idea. But again, how how do you really make that happen? So I think a lot of it is just a lot of talk, but there's not going to be a lot of walk. Interesting to use the phrase, phrase globally competitive when it comes to uh, the arts, uh, when you've just mm. delivered a very hard Brexit. Well, and especially because I think 20, about 20 million is going to promoting UK movies abroad, I think. Right. Um, and it's a bit like, okay, 
doing that at the same time as basically cutting the BBC budgets to the bone mm-hmm. when actually BBC TV series are one of the main cultural exports, exports that Britain has. Yeah. Um, but anyway... Yeah. Well, in recent days, she's um, also spoken about the online safety bill, uh, touting a range of further plans for this. How do you think that whole agenda is going down with the average Joe? I don't know. I, I feel like that one's quite hard to tell as well, purely because I feel like everything that's been that's being discussed around the online safety bill is basically stuff that's been discussed for years and years now. I'm aware that you know nothing has kind of happened. So one of the main ones is, um, I think, so it's. Uh, making sure that uh, porn providers online uh, check uh, people's ages before they let them um, access explicit explicit content. So fun fact about that, I believe it was in the Conservative Party manifesto in 2015. You know, that's something we started talking about in 2015, seven years ago, and it's still not happened. Um, so even setting aside, you know, whether that's a good or bad idea, that's something that's been in the headlines for seven years now. So I'm not sure mm. that anyone's kind of seeing this and having some sort of, you know, very strong opinion either way and saying, you know, legislating against sort of, you know, online abuse and threats and stuff. I feel like that's something that's been in the background of the news for mm. years now. So, I mean, m- maybe something will happen one way or the other once we have a good sense of what exactly will be in that bill and what exactly will happen and whether it will be doable, you know, in real life. But until then, I'm not sure anyone cares. And also, I feel like, you know, we kind of collectively have bigger fish to fry at the moment. It's near the end of the show, so it's time to take a look at the stories that aren't getting the attention they deserve in our section called Under the Radar. Ian, what have we missed this week? In Australia, we don't often talk about Australian politics, but it's arguably just as much of an absolute hellhole as it is here. Um, Scott Morrison, utter buffoon of of a prime minister, is now passing a religious discrimination bill, um, which essentially seeks to insulate religious groups from uh, prejudice against sort of gay people, against trans people, students, staff. It is a, a really very sloppily worded bill, given the sensitivities of the areas that it is touching on. And this week, a man called Stephen Jones, who's the Labour MP for Whitlam, uh, made a speech uh, from, he's a backbencher and I don't really understand how their parliament works. It looks a lot like ours, but he was at the front of it. So I was going to say from the back benches, but he's at the front bench. Ignore my utter ignorance <laughs> to the constitutional <laughs> mechanisms of Australian politics. But he made, I mean, one of the best speeches I'd heard in a really, really long time in any chamber at all, like deeply personal, deeply touching, and about as good an account of what it is to be a diverse society and, and to have tolerance baked into your sense of national identity as I've heard from anyone in any country for ages. So his name is uh, Stephen Jones, Labour MP for Whitlam, and I would really urge you to, to Google that and have a listen to that speech. Marie, what, what have you clocked that the rest of us haven't? Um, well, so Parliament has uh, scrapped the sponsor body overseeing the restoration of the Palace of Westminster, which I know sounds extremely dry, <laughs> but basically, long story short, what happened is that over the past sort of like decade now, I think even, Parliament keeps commissioning those reports saying, okay, you know, what should we do? You know, the the building is effectively falling apart and is on fire every day. What should we do? (laughs) Every report comes out and says, what needs to happen is that everyone needs to leave the building for two years so we can rebuild everything. Because, you know, any option that that involves people staying in the building will take many, many more years and cost many, many more billion pounds. Each time they're like, okay, thanks for that. We will now commission a different report. (laughs) Um, 
And you know, but generally this has happened several times. It's insane. And and the latest one, you'll be amazed to find. So Parliament paid five million pounds to have a new report made. And again, try to contain your shock, it said, please leave the building for two years, <laughs> otherwise everything will collapse and there will be a major fire. And uh, and yeah, they have reacted to that this week by uh, scrapping the body that said that. Um, and they're going to commission something else again. Um, so again, it's just one of those where, it, it, you know, Parliament will burn down. Like, it, it's just going to happen now. Um, yeah, so there you go. I can't believe how many years this has been going on as well. I feel like it's been at least seven years that they've been going through this process. But longer, longer. <laughs> it, it, it generally feels like, yeah, first as a tragedy, then as a farce, because I remember at the time, like, following it and being genuinely concerned and quite angry, this one I wrote, I genuinely burst out <laughs> laughing. It was just like, yeah, sure, sure, sure yeah. <laughs> Alex, what have you got for us? So uh, uh, my story is related to what we were talking about at the top of the show. Uh, so it's related to the reshuffle, but it's a little detail of the reshuffle that I would urge people to look into. So this is about James Cleverly being made Minister for Europe. Um, and this happened, James Cleverly was formerly Minister for North America, North Africa and the Middle East. But he was made Minister for Europe while on an actual state visit to America. Um, (laughs) So he was posting a photo of him meeting sort of senators uh, in some state event while that brief was taken away from him. And uh, last I checked, which is Wednesday evening, he hasn't been replaced, which just seems weird. And that's the show. Big thanks to Alex. Thank you. Ian. Thank you. And our guest, Marie LeConte. Thank you. Stay tuned for a preview of our extra bit exclusively for Patreons. You'll hear a preview after our theme song, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop. And a thanks to our latest backers. Thanks from me to Chris White, Oliver Pink, Barry Donnellan, Dom, Paul Hardwick, Chris and Paul Taylor. Uh, hello and major thanks from me to Martin Krask, John McLean, David Prosser, Rick Ogden, Nim Chimsky, my personal favourite of all um, of our Patreon backers today because you're clearly a 2008 fan, Matthew Enright and Ruth Shafto. Many, many thanks from me to Eileen O'Brien, Imogen Smith, Rawa Fesahaye, Simon Gill, Alexander Faithful, Joe Moken, Alistair Wood. And finally, a big shout out from me to Tim Smith, Keith Reed, Jen B, Colin Morrison, Chris Jones, Mark Stanbrook and Neil O'Malley. We'll see you next time. Oh God, What Now? was presented by Naomi Smith with Alex Andreu, Ian Gunt and Marie LeConte. The producers were Jacob Archwold and Yelena Sofronevich. Group editor is Andrew Harrison and lead producer is Jacob Jarvis. Audio production came from me, Robin Leeburn, and Oh God, What Now? is a Podmasters production. It's a day ending in Y, which means Boris Johnson is facing calls to apologise for something. (laughs) Naming all of them would take up an episode of its own. So in the extra bit this week, I'm asking the panel, what are the big things they've had to apologise for or the difficult apologies that we've avoided? So don't be shy. Who wants to go first? 
Uh, so I, I have no shame and this is very embarrassing, so I'm happy to do it first and get out of the way. Um, next, I was trying to think, and actually, I think my worst apology was, um, so many, many years ago, at uh, the end of high school, there was a big prom, um, and there was this boy I'd fancied for ages, and I got very drunk, and I basically went to snog him, and it turns out he had, you know, no interest whatsoever in snogging me, uh, which was mortifying, as you can imagine. Um, anyway, so then I had to avoid him at school for about a week, um, and then I was like, you know what, no, Marie, you're going to have to be the bigger person here, and just apologise, that like, it's fine, it happened, it's not the end of the world. Um, and I bumped into him that Saturday night, um, buying alcohol in the local supermarket with his friends. Um, and I was like, fine, fine, no time like the present. So I went up to him again in front of all his friends. And I was like, just wanted to say, I'm really sorry I tried to kiss you at that prom. Like, I was very drunk. Um, he didn't remember. Yeah. He was really drunk as well. He'd forgotten. No one had seen. So instead, I just oh, confessed to it in front you. of five teenage boys. <laughs> Um, so there you go. I my worst apology. You, I think I would have just <laughs> left. I would have made my parents send me to a different school or something. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> Not that was a trailer for the bonus bit in this week's podcast. If you'd like a little bit more, oh god, what now? Every week without ads and a day early, then sign up to back us on Patreon for as little as two pounds a month. You'll also get our new weekly mini cast. Oh god, what else? Out every Monday morning exclusive to backers your support really does help keep us going thanks for listening see you next week